the editor-in-chief of the Cornell Review, a correspondent for Campus Reform, a young scholar at Cornell University. He hosted a talk show that broadcast to 20 million people. He's a best-selling author, and he's just getting started. The one, the only, Joe Silverstein. All right, everyone, welcome to this episode of the Joe Silverstein Podcast, and today I'm joined by the Tea Party National Founder, Michael Johns. Michael, how are you doing today, sir? Good, Joe. How are you? Good to be with you. I'm doing good, and it's good to talk to you. I want to jump right in. So what we've been seeing over the last few months in this country has really been problematic for a lot of people between the civil unrest and the cancel culture in academia. We've certainly seen it. Uh, you wrote a paper that got a lot of attraction and got a lot of um, significant attention years ago. It was called 70 Years of Evil. So what, And it was about communism in the 20th century. What did you see then in that ideology that is now similar to many of the things we're seeing play out today with Antifa, with Black Lives Matter, and with some of the policy goals of these organizations and the culture? Well, then, then like now, we were in, engaged in a fierce battle of ideas. Um, American liberals now like to describe the Cold War as a simple period between good and evil, but trust me, they pushed back completely on the thesis that the Soviet Union was evil. Of course, Reagan uh, went to Brandenburg Gate, gave the famous um, evil empire uh, speech before that, opened the gates, you know, really pushed, um, really pushed Gorbachev on defensive, uh, I think incentivized and encouraged the people within the Soviet bloc to recognize that they had a future beyond communism. Uh, which was offering them nothing but control and economic uh, repression and um, you know, lack of, um, of, of really any optimistic future. And so um, we were engaged at that time. And by we, by we, I mean, I was a young conservative at that time, um, you know, kind of, uh, out of right out of college and um, was engaged really with a lot of the generation above me and trying to establish the fact that the Soviet Union, as Reagan said, was in fact an evil empire. And so uh, I guess it would have been November of 87 came along with the 70th anniversary of the Bolshevik Revolution. I got the idea at the beginning of the summer beforehand to kind of go through a lot of literature and um, news reports and uh, biographies and autobiographies and really document the, um, the evils of the Soviet Union from the Bolshevik Revolution in 1917, Vladimir Lenin to the uh, Gorbachev's uh, reign uh, in, in 87. And I had uh, you know hundreds and hundreds of entries and quite honestly, it could very easily have been thousands. Uh, it was well received. And I think it was a giant leap in establishing the fact that Reagan was absolutely on target despite criticism from the left at the time that the Soviet Union was in fact an evil empire. For sure. And, you know, one of the things I want to touch on is you talked about Reagan, you talked about the left's attitude at the time towards the Soviet Union. As a current undergraduate, we're taught often about the Red Scare in history and political science courses. It's always uh, about UAC committees and all these things. But what we're not taught about is why there was a Red Scare. What we're not taught about is many of the things you covered in your essay, which is all the horrors of communism, 
all of the property that was stolen in the quote unquote name of common good uh, that was destroyed, that led to the deaths of over 100 million people, as the Wall Street Journal reported. I mean, to put this into perspective, Hitler, who was evil, who was terrible, who was one of the worst people to ever live, he only managed to kill six million people which is a tremendous number it's disturbing as someone who has you know jewish people in my own family very disturbing not at all meant to minimize that but marxism which is apparently a much more contagious idea killed 100 million so i guess my question is why isn't marxism viewed in the same evil in the same way that nazism is why is marxism allowed on this sort of far left end of the spectrum uh, why is marxism allowed to thrive in academia never, it doesn't thrive in reality by the way we both understand that you know perfectly well but in academia in pop culture and other places like for example i spoke to a peer of mine who goes to binghamton university and she was saying all these things about the rich oppressing the poor and class warfare and i had said could you disavow because I said, you're a Marxist. She said, I'm not a Marxist. I said, could you disavow the teachings of Karl Marx, the writings of Karl Marx? Could you disavow Marxism? And she said, oh, I haven't studied Marxism enough uh, to disavow him. I haven't read the, the Communist Manifesto. So to me, that's crazy because that's like asking someone, that's the equivalent of asking them whether or not they disavow Hitler or Nazism and the response of the person being, oh, well, I didn't read Mein Kampf. You know, these aren't things you have to read you don't have to read these horrible doctrines to know that they're they lead to death, destruction, and evil. Well, yeah, I mean the I mean the idea of capitalism is one, and free market is one that we can always grow beyond what we are. Um, I think on the left there's this perspective that there's only so much that you know if one person has a little more than the other, it's being um, you know unfairly distributed. The reality of capitalism and a free market is that you can that all people can blossom um, through economic growth and prosperity um, individuals that uh, you know go to work at a restaurant may ultimately one day own a restaurant people who own one restaurant may ultimately own a chain of restaurants um, that's where the opportunity emerges individuals uh, take jobs based on accepting the terms of those jobs, not because they're forced into it or because it's uh, the only opportunity or because some party official as in, in the uh, communist world determines that's what they're destined to do. Um, yeah, and I think you're on to exactly a, a good point there, um, Joe, and it's gonna, be the, it's gonna be the challenge of your generation to establish the fact that uh, the political sphere that we're taught about is not one of uh, communism and fascism, but one of totalitarian political beliefs in all of their manifestations and liberty and freedom in all of its manifestations on the other side. Uh, we are advocates as conservatives of freedom and are opponents of autocracy, fascism, communism, and the commonalities between Nazism and communism are sufficiently there to be studied and learned. I mean, um, Hitler learned a great deal uh, from Lenin and Stalin. That's not any secret. Uh, Stalin, of course, tried to make a bond with Hitler in the Stalin-Hitler Pact uh, during that period. The economic um, structure of Nazi Germany was, you know, it, it, was moving in a socialist direction and the Nazi stands for national socialist um, um, 
you know, party. Uh, socialist is actually in the title of it. It was embraced. Um, and they were designed to, you know, really to control the aspects of, of society and individuals and the politics of um, and political engagement of all people, of, of which there was no room for any opposition. And that's very much obviously in opposition to freedom and liberty and the foundations on which this country um, has been established. I mean, our First Amendment rights are, are just kind of crucially uh, important, which gets to your point on this cancel culture is that it, it, there's, a, there's a great degree of, of irony really in seeing a liberal progressive movement that for 20 years, roughly 15, 20 years, has been preaching about the need for tolerance and acceptance and inclus inclusivity. And, um, you know, many of us, me included, sort of nodded a little bit in agreement with most of that. I think the idea was, yeah, let's, you know, we don't want barriers to people. We want um, opportunity open to any, to the extent there are barriers or stigmas or anything like that. Let's, you know, let's take sensible steps to get rid of those. Um, and of course, what they really meant now, it's pretty clear, <laughs> was they meant, uh, you know, inclusivity um, and inclusion for their ideas, not anyone of any other ideas. And I can't think of anything more dangerous in this country right now than the fact that an individual who frankly holds, like in my view, I don't, I describe myself as a conservative, but I would say, you know, my views are very centrist. I mean, they're very consistent with, I think, mainstream political philosophy in this country. I believe in the free market. I believe in our constitution. I believe in limited government. Um, I believe in, um, you know, the adherence and, and uh, governance of the rule of law and of uh, our country, of, of, of the idea that we're, you know, we have borders and we have a, you know, essentially a, a national identity and a national uh, cause that all of us as Americans share together. And just increasingly, as you can see with what's transpiring over the last few months in the streets of large cities across this country, those are uh, ideas that are just absolutely rejected by this very small but violent and I think incredibly dangerous movement that has emerged. And like any socialist movement, and this is key if you read, if you did read the Communist Manifesto, anyone who did read it would know that Marx in identifying the inevitability of a, of a clash um, between classes uh, described that as a political tactic through which he, they could assume control. Mm. Um, it was all based on the optics of the moment and how you would justify um, seizing control. The, the, you know, this kind of Brahm Emanuel philosophy that no uh, crisis can go to waste, which seems to be governing the left. And I think that's kind of how I look at what's transpired. I mean, think like most Americans, you look at the incident in um, Minneapolis and um, curious to see more emerge, you know, hopefully as, tri as his trial is unveiled. But you look at that and you say, yeah, by and large, that looks like excessive force. Um, that was utilized. Uh, unclear to me that he intended to kill him. That seems like it's a giant leap of assumptions. Mm -hmm. um, and I haven't seen evidence that suggests to me that the that George Floyd's African American um, ethnicity 
motivated his behavior either. That guy was on the force for 18. I'm not defending him, but the guy was on. I know for sure, for sure. That guy was on the force for 18 years. I assume if his motivation in getting active in in um, law enforcement was to uh, take out punitive measures on African Americans, that would have been discovered much earlier than it was. And he did have some complaints against all. I'd be curious to see what that was. But anyway, so we all kind of joined in that, me included, in saying yes, you know. You shouldn't be kneeling on someone's neck for for uh, nine minutes, um, you know, and and that's reprehensible. Um, and he that that officer needs to be held accountable. That mo movement that he that move that he was using of of um, you know on of applying pressure to the neck was one that was actually taught in Minneapolis uh, police academies and was t entirely legal and permissible in uh, their police tactics. They've now properly, I think, taken the move not to do that. Uh, law enforcement is a very difficult job. These guys are facing a lot of stress. They're not getting the level of support from communities that they once got. They're, they're you know, asked to go into these very difficult situations, um, you know, with individuals and drugs and, and hopelessness and people that sometimes have nothing to lose. Um, but this is all, this is no longer about George Floyd, who, you know, this incident occurred two months ago now. Um, and this is a movement on our streets that uh, you don't have to take my word for it. Go look at the found, the state of the founders of BLM, they're self-declared de uh, um, Marxists who are trained both in the ideology and tactics of Marxism and do support that as a way of, you know, of what their ultimate goal is. And uh, the genius, of course, of BLM, which I will give them credit for, is the marketing of it. Oh, yeah. Because you and I, I assume, we've talked about it, but I assume we both agree that there's two things here. I mean, do black lives matter? Yes. I assume you say yes. Yes, of course. No, no African American should be losing their life uh, because of excessive force um, of law enforcement or anything like that. And just by way of statistics, last year there were 375 million encounters between American citizens and law enforcement. Of that, there were 19 uh, white American, unarmed white Americans who were killed uh, in those encounters, and there were nine African Americans who were killed. So there were nine incidents like this out of 375 million, even those nine have certain circumstances around them. Um, but this is a really, in the grand scale of threats to the, to the lives of African Americans, being killed unnecessarily by a law enforcement official is probably not in the top 50. No, not at all. It's at the bottom of the list. And, and to a point you just made, so someone had came on my page and said, do you think that Black Lives Matter? in response to one of my podcast posts, uh, the one with Andrea Katzmatidis, one of my posts. And I said, of course, Black Lives Matter. That's sort of a ridiculous question to ask in 2020. My problem isn't with the phrase. My problem is with the organization behind the phrase that's advocating for the destruction of the nuclear family, for the abolition of police. As you said, the two leaders, uh, the two women that founded it, both self-proclaimed to be Marxists. And you see it. And, and you see it just not with them, but you also see it with elected officials. Bill de Blasio, for example, who was very happy to paint Black Lives Matter in every borough of New York City and to station police by the Manhattan one to protect it, although crime is surging and shootings are up by 400%, uh, he actually quoted Karl Marx in an interview. 
openly and it wasn't like a mistake sometimes you quote somebody and you don't know who you're quoting he said i'll have to quote karl marx here and then he went on to say that the government should not serve as as an employee for businesses or something of that nature but i mean he openly quoted karl marx which was pretty disturbing it's something that is very disturbing but the fact you said it's a very small minority of the country uh that supports this radicalism that supports this violent movement Many of them come from the suburbs. Many of them in Antifa are Caucasian. So we're not trying to give anyone the impression that we're saying this is exclusive to any one community or one ethnicity, because that's certainly not the case. Uh, that being said, I think one of the problems is, and we talked about it briefly off there, conservatives aren't vocal or even centrists aren't vocal in their opinions. We've let a very small radical group dominate every aspect of American life. They dominate pop culture in Hollywood. They dominate the corporations. People think the corporations are these right-wing organizations. It's the most absurd thing I've ever heard. You look at the HR departments, you look at the mandatory training that people have to go through, you look at some of the things people have gotten fired for recently, they dominate the corporations, they dominate academia. Professor Jacobson, the Cornell Law School professor who happens to be the faculty advisor for both the Review and the Cornell Republicans, a great esteemed professor, they went after him. They boycotted him. They tried to get him fired. The university, the dean of the school, of the law school, uh, denounced his statements. So there is this purge. And I think one of the reasons we're having such a problem is because not just Republicans, but Republicans and libertarians and independents and conservatives and even liberals in the old school sense of it, are afraid to speak out, are afraid to go against this. So one of the things we need to do is not just win at the ballot box, but also win in the culture. We need to have these debates. And, and, and from my own personal experiences in a very liberal institution, there's been radical things that have been said in courses, in other academic pursuits and fellowships. And what I find to be most productive on a micro level is when I voice my opinion, because then, then that moves the conversation um, further towards where it should be, towards the middle. Because if there's all these people out far left going unchallenged about how crazy their ideas are, they just keep repeating themselves and responding, oh, does that sound like a good idea? Oh, yeah, I think that sounds like a good idea. You know, so it, it's something well, that is- good news, though, um, I mean, I mean, you, the, the bad news is uh, we have spent a lot of time complaining about this uh, far left takeover of these key institutions in our country. Uh, what we didn't do was do much about it while it was happening. And even now I notice the position on it. it I mean, it's outrageous to me when, when someone's like, aha, look at the left-wing bias of, uh, you know, some mainstream media outlet. Well, of course. I mean, you know, I mean, like, I think even they consider it laughable that we're pointing this out. I mean, they have chosen that side. Um, it's completely monolithic. I mean, it's, which is really quite incredible. I mean, you go through that White House press corps and take out the, the own correspondent and who knows where the Fox News correspondent is and take maybe those two guys out. I'm not sure, you just know there's not one person in there who has an ounce of uh, support or sympathy for this president versus the last president who they almost all voted for. Um, so, but that, that, so that's the bad news. I mean, we got to find our way back into these institutions, create our new ones if necessary. Uh, I, I hope that the position should be one taking this idea of diversity seriously um, and, and also getting rid of the use of um, allegations of racism as really a political tool. I mean, let's, I, I'll be honest with you, I've been at this for, for over 30 years. 
been in many closed door meetings in our federal government, the White House, Congress with conservatives, and obviously our Tea Party movement, um, in other organizations, not leading conservative think tank in the world. I can honestly say to you, I never once heard anything that brushed up upon racist thinking or ra racist opinions. Um, and just the opposite, uh, I think there's been a great degree of confusion by conservatives about why our ideal ideas have not been generally more widely held and accepted by African-Americans. The answer to that probably is we have to get more assertive in, in you know, getting into African-American communities and churches and organizations and just talking openly. I've always done that. I've never, you know, I've dealt with some of the most contentious issues um, around and I've always found that, you know, if you approach it with some degree of intellectual honesty and with sincerity, which is truly my approach, which is one of like, how do we take these problems and make them better? Um, and you're not doing that necessarily for personal gain or for alternative motives. Um, people are pretty open to receiving those ideas, not the mobs on this street though. And as you correctly said, it represents a very small percent of our total population, certainly less than 1%. And um, and it doesn't represent mainstream views of, of African Americans. I mean, that's the the you know there is not a uh, consensus in the African American community to be to go out and harm innocent people and and burn down buildings and attack uh, law enforcement. That's just not a view held. Um, it may be fair to say that there's a view held that law enforcement needs to reform some of its practices and policies that Fourth Amendment probable cause issues are maybe not as taken as seriously in some African-American communities as others. Some of these communities are highly crime-ridden and, and these, you know, these police officers can get a little disregarding, I think, of some of these constitutional issues and that's a problem and that's gonna be taken seriously and it is being taken seriously. But as our Attorney General said today, this idea that there is systemic racism, systemic meaning stemming from all institutions and all causes from basically all people is the most ridiculous and absurd notion out there. And these guys seem to specialize in ridiculous notions because they take a position that's a thousand miles down the road and then they settle the debate for something that's 750 miles down the road. And that's an incredible win to them. Um, we need to be settling these issues in, through debate winning of hearts and minds of people, not violence. Um, I believe, you know, these, these cities have got to basically start kicking out a lot of these mayors that refuse to enforce the rule of law and have done nothing for their citizens. I mean, in the very name of, of African-Americans, they're allowing this violence to go forward, and yet they've done nothing for African-Americans for the most part in these cities. Uh, huge unemployment rates, drug and crime problems, completely broken public school systems, uh, no hope out. They've created a cycle of dependency and hopelessness in these communities that's been unfair to African-Americans. And I think we as conservatives and liberty-minded Americans have to get into these areas and sort of ask them how they feel things have been going the last few decades. And if they feel that um, maybe they could be better, which I think almost everyone would acknowledge, I think we got to do a lot of listening to them and maybe, you know, then exploring some creative alternatives. And we have a whole bunch in our arsenal 
the things we know that work as it relates to law and order in communities, as it relates to drugs and, and um, addiction issues, as it relates to economic prosperities, um, free enterprise zones, which can, which can work well in some of these areas, school choice. I mean, no African-American mother or father should be forced to send their kid to a public school system that is um, you know, violent and uncontrolled and is not con contributing to the economic, uh, to the uh, educational progress of that child, they absolutely uh, have to have the opportunity to remove kids from that sort of environment. If we don't have that sort of accountability, the system's broken from the get-go for kids 18 and younger. And if it's broken for a whole generation of people like that, as it has been now for decades, you end up seeing you know, problematic kids at 16, 17, and 18 um, heading into futures that are were to really squandered opportunity and squandered hope because it doesn't have to play out that way. Yeah, I certainly agree with that. And we do have to do a better job going into those communities. I don't think there's enough outreach efforts on behalf of people who are right of center. And that's unfortunate because our ideas work. You see with the Trump administration, I mean, a lot of action has been taken to help the African-American community. And prior to the COVID pandemic, African-Americans were doing quite well. Unemployment was at historic lows. Also for Hispanics, unemployment was at historic lows. You had the real estate opportunity zones, which were very beneficial for the economic conditions of underserved and underprivileged communities. Uh, something that AOC plus three has vowed to get rid of. Uh, you have school choice, which has been supported by Bessie DeVos and has been supported by the Trump administration. And that's really essential school choice. I mean, multiple studies have been done, studies at Stanford have been done to demonstrate the benefits of these, particularly as it pertains to inner city kids of school choice. And Joe Biden vows to get rid of school choice. So that's certainly something that is- um, Oh, and you might be overlooking one of the biggest, and that was the criminal justice reform initiative. That's right, the First Step Act. You know, so, you know, we're now gonna go into the political season in a big way here after Labor Day and American people, are, whether they like it or not, are gonna be hearing a lot of Joe Biden probably every day. When you hear Joe Biden describe the plight of African-Americans or you hear him describe the plight of any challenge in this country, I think the first thing you gotta realize is that this is a guy who has been in public life at the highest levels as Senator and Vice President for nearly five decades. And um, if these issues are all of a sudden concerning to him, you got, you got to push back and ask the question, what'd you do about him when you had the opportunity? That's right. Um, you know, that 2008 election of Obama and Biden to me seems like yesterday. And I can still remember the hope and change of rallies and speeches and all the promises that were made to individuals who um, took both of those men at their word that they were going to address the plight of um, these constituencies. And they did absolutely nothing. In fact, when they left office uh, after really eight totally unremarkable years, uh, I would love to hear, for instance, what they even consider to be their singular greatest achievement. I, I mean, I'm really curious. Just, I, I wouldn't know how to answer that question if I were um, you know, involved as I have been involved in shaping communication strategy for you know, a, pol a major politician, national leader, president. Um, it's going to be really interesting to see how they justify, you know, eight years with not one year over 3% GDP for the first, the only president in American history uh, to go eight years without accomplishing that. Completely unremarkable 
um, stagnant wages, um, growth of, of, of individuals not in the labor market, um, no real progress, you know, despite all the rhetoric in health care or health insurance. I mean, um, they came in, I think, with uh, almost 40 million uninsured, and they left with, you know, they drove about 5 million out of the private insurance marketplace with their Obamacare mandates, and they added about 5 million with this really horrible Obamacare coverage that was usually costly and basically just a catastrophic plan, net-net. They didn't really do much to address the plight of the uninsured in the country, uh, except really to contribute um, to adding new people to it. And um, you know, I just think by and then you know, foreign policy, national security is still an issue for the pe for American people. It's not a leading issue, but it is an a it is a issue. I mean, you can't help but look at the vast damage that was done in empowering Iran with these um, you know billions upon billions of dollars that they in turn turned around and fed into Hamas and Hezbollah and the Houthis in Yemen and um, all of these violent um, and, and killing of Americans in Iraq um, with the Iraqi Shiite segments. You know, th th this really is because, you know, they really basically created an evil power in the region. I think the evil was already there, but they gave them the means to actually do extraordinary damage. And of course the nuclear development, nuclear weapons development programs ongoing um, you know, even race relations, if you go back and look at the Gallup polls, which I've done um, for, you know, purposes of communication on these messages, and, and out of curiosity, if you look at what the perspective of the American people was on, on, on race relations, it was lower under those last few months of Obama than it was like in the 2018 range. Donald Trump actually had made progress in the minds of most Americans in improving race relations in this country, for, and for a whole bunch of reasons. He was the first Republican really, I think, to be able to get out there and not talk about cutting Medicare and Medicaid, which I think is both good policy and politics. Those, those are institutions now, those are key parts uh, to the provision of, of healthcare for the poor and, old, and elderly in this country. And that's not the hill politically that any conservative should wanna die on. Um, and, and, you know, and he, and he talked openly about uh, the plight of African Americans under these Democrat mayors and Democrat city councils and, you know, maybe what, what he had to lose was maybe not the most compelling argument, but it was at least a question that got a lot of people, uh, including Kanye West, thinking about, you know, all this stuff. And um, he did better uh, among African Americans than Mitt Romney did. Uh, he did better than John McCain did. So I find it really rich to hear a guy like Mitt Romney criticizing the president for being purportedly insensitive, which is another euphemism for not having the ideas I hold, um, when in fact he was embraced politically by vastly more uh, African-Americans than, um, than uh, Romney was with wow. his and I just, and honestly, that, that election, um, we didn't talk too much about the Tea Party movement, but obviously this whole country is different because of the Tea Party movement. I mean, we started in 2009, um, you were probably pretty young then, and, um, but things were bleak. You know, we had uh, Obama just elected with a perceived mandate, all those institutions that you just rattled off, including the media completely in the hands of the left, the House in the hands of Nancy Pelosi, the Senate in the hands of Harry Reid, and we, me included, made the promise that we were going to take this country back through this movement. We went out and 
I had over 60 house victories as self-identified Tea Party candidates in 2010 uh, and fired Nancy Pelosi. That completely blocked Obama's agenda. Um, so much like Trump with his first two years, he had two years of Democrat control, but given the first political opportunity, we blocked it. And that was pretty much the end of the legislative agenda of Barack Obama was the Tea Party uh, revolution of 2010. And then we said, look, we're gonna come back in 2014. We're gonna block all these radical, progressive uh, activist judges uh, and take the Senate back. And we did that. And we, um, you know, kind of gets forgotten a little bit now, but uh, candidates that ran as self-identified Tea Party candidates for the Senate included people like Marco Rubio, included people like Ted in Florida, Ted Cruz in Texas, Rand Paul in Kentucky, Mike Lee in Utah. All of those guys won in, in, the, in the Tea Party, you know, wave. Um, and key administrations in this, in, this, in this administration. I mean, Mark Meadows, I think he's doing a really um, good job as chief of staff in the White House, came in as part of a, a Tea Party uh, wave and uh, was part of um, our Tea Party caucus in the House. Mike Pompeo, self-identified Tea Party conservative, won uh, his seat on the Tea Party wave and embraced the ideas. And so we've given rise both to you know, but the blocking Obama's agenda, I mean, I don't think at the end of the day, historians are going to say that he delivered on this promise of fundamentally transforming the country any, or even any fundamentally transforming anything. And importantly, despite, in addition to the House and Senate, we, you know, it's not widely known that Donald Trump also spoke at Tea Party rallies, including in Boca Raton, Florida in 2011, we gave an incredible speech. I believe it's still on YouTube. It's absolutely worth going and, and listening to. It's impressive because he um, was able to meld both the Tea Party agenda of adherence to the Constitution, limited government, lower taxes, all three principles that we were founded on that he supported, with the agenda that he's continued to pursue as a that he went on to pursue as a candidate and as a president of China ripping off the United States and cheating us and, and emerging as a threat to our, our country and, um, and of, of the border and, uh, and illegal immigration crisis, which, and those were two issues, you know, I talked a bit about them back then, but they were not really central to our movement at that time. And they're now very much um, center to this movement. And I know for a fact, you know, Trump left that rally and, and uh, I think there was a Wall Street Journal article written about it. Um, or actually, I think it's a reporter who's now with the Wall Street Journal who read it for one of the Florida newspapers uh, about how, how really enthusiastic he was about the Tea Party movement. And he was, you know, supportive of it throughout, spoke positively about it. And I mentioned all that because I think when you look at that 2016 race and the methodologies he employed of actually running, really, let's face it, against the Republican Party establishment, you know, Donald Trump didn't win the Republican nomination. He technically did, but he displaced the Republican Party establishment. He he ran for president. He he went he ran for president trying to secure the Republican Party nomination, basically saying that the Republican Party had lost its way, which of course was a centerpiece of the Tea Party movement. Um, and and then of course the rally-based campaign methodology is one that we deployed. We used pretty successfully, I think most people would say, um, you know, to educate and um, get 
citizens enthusiastic and involved politically in um, realizing that they could actually make a big difference. For sure. Well, the rallies are very important, too. I'm actually interested in organizing a Back to Blue rally here in New York City, just given everything that's going on. Uh, that being said, I do want to ask about the media. Well, before you go on, I'll tell you, you will have great support for that. Um, the NYPD is one of the great law enforcement, probably the greatest law enforcement agency in the world. I mean, people come from all over the world and in, in law enforcement agencies, the Middle East and Africa and Asia to learn how they do it in New York City. And I'll also tell you my experience in New York City, and I would say this in Philadelphia as well, is that they're good people. I mean, these are people, they're not like out to cause people problems. They're not, you know, they really represent some of the best of our, you know, um, citizens, you know, who, who've engaged. And, you know, with the magnitude and sensitivity and high pressure environments that they're put into, um, you can't look at that and say anything but, wow, they really are successful. They're not getting rich off this job. There's not any glory in it uh, for the most part. It's increasingly difficult. But NYPD is um, one of the great law enforcement agencies and entities in the, in, in the world. And I will tell you that the people of New York City may not uh, be communicating that as much right now, but they believe that to be the case. Those who have benefited from it have seen it in, in process. You know, I think if you move forward with that, you're gonna see that there's, you know, thousands upon thousands of uh, New York City residents who absolutely subscribe to it completely. Absolutely. I would even say the majority. I think there was a poll that said 66% of New Yorkers uh, don't support abolishing the police. So it's definitely very interesting. I was going to ask, what do you think about the media coverage of the Tea Party and even the coverage in academia and how it's studied versus the coverage of the Black Lives Matter movement? Because what I've heard, especially as I got to the universities, a lot of professors and even textbooks will say the Tea Party movement was based in xenophobia and homophobia and sex and all these things that aren't true, that I know not to be true, because although I was nine years old, uh, you know, I have friends and family who are very active in politics locally and very active in following the news, even at that time. And I saw what was happening. I saw what it was about. It was about, like you said, small government. It was about power to the people. It was about conservative values. And it was a movement that included all kinds of people from all walks of life. You saw African-Americans in those crowds. You saw Hispanics in those crowds. Uh, and of course, you saw Caucasians too, which is, I mean, some people think that's a problem, but I don't think that's a problem. I think all races are, are welcome. But, you know, they, they say that this was based in racism, this movement, versus Black Lives Matter is a movement where you see people burning down federal courthouses to the point where Trump has to send in the, the Homeland Security and they say they're peaceful protesters. They say that the peaceful protester got shot when in fact the man was pointing an AK-47 at a man in his vehicle. So how do you view the unfavorable coverage of the Tea Party compared to the favorable coverage of the Black Lives Matter movement and the making up of accusations against people like you, but the, I guess you could say, ignoring of legitimate problems within BLM? Well, I mean, this is immensely sensitive work, and I think we, when we went into it, we were aware, because it was already being utilized as a tactic on the left to delegitimize it. I mean, um, if I'm able to, or anyone's able to assign the uh, motivations of racism to an individual, 
all of a sudden, whatever their ideas are become like irrelevant, right? I mean, uh, uh, I would sort of say that myself. I mean, if, if I believed someone was a bona fide racist, it wouldn't matter much to me that they had some clever idea on some policy matter here or there. Um, so it's utterly delegitimizing. And I was about to say to you earlier, but it certainly applies here, that you know, racism is probably one of the greatest uh, evils uh, that exists in the history of man. It goes back thousands upon thousands of years. There's no civilization really in the history of the world that hasn't had uh, it employed to some degree. Um, and uh, it, so it's one of the great sins. But you know, one of the second greatest thin, sins, you know, just beneath it, is the false allegation of racism. And I believe, um, you know, for instance, when I'm looking at these um, lawsuits were brought by the high school kids in DC against CNN, Washington Post for allegations of racist uh, motivations, and they just settle all those lawsuits. Like, uh, we got to get to a point where, you know, the allegation of racism in a society that takes racism very seriously is, you know, considered to be a, a social crime itself. And I believe that to be the case. I certainly, it's never anything that I would apply to anyone unless it was a bona fide basis for it. We had almost 40 million people at some point that were involved at some level in the Tea Party movement. And let me just tell you, this idea that was presented on the left that, you know, we could meticulously manage this whole thing because we were backed by multi-billionaires was an absolute lie. Um, it's very difficult when you have an, a movement that basically is no barrier to entry to control the steps, measures, messaging, demeanor of every single individual. And yet, when I go back and look at 11 years now of Tea Party activism on a day-to-day -day basis in just about every community and, and town and city uh, of this country, it, the record is is laudable and impressive. I mean, we're constantly said that we leave the rallies looking better, the, with the um, property looking better than when we found it. Um, you would find there's patriotism. There was not one example that I'm aware of, of any violence uh, pursued or um, attached to any Tea Party activist at any of our events or public events, nor would there have been any tolerance for it. Um, you know, and to the extent anyone was looking to express racist sentiments or that, there's no tolerance for that either. Uh, so it was a false lie. I find it incredible to me, to your point on these books, um, there's easily two dozen or more books, if, maybe it's like 50 even by now, that have been written. And, they, and you're exactly right. They were predominantly written by these academics. And I look at these things, they'd be like 400 pages, like on the Tea Party movement. And I'd ask around, I'm like, did you speak to professor, you know, XYZ at Yale or Columbia or whoever about their book? You know, cause like, how would you, like, if you were, even if you had a left-wing bias, if you were gonna go out and write a book about a movement that didn't exist before 2009, you think you'd probably reach out and talk to some people who were actually participating in it and leading it. And I'll tell you, systematically, none of us ever heard a word from any of these people. You know, right. so they basically just kind of like created their own story about how they wanted to present it. Um, one of the great unbelievable lies and biases of uh, higher education today is that everything's perceived to be viewed through some racial lens. And right. you know, in many cases, they sought to pre present it that way, which is very rich given the fact that we elected many, many African-Americans 
they just weren't the type of African-Americans that supported their very far left um, agenda, you know, and we had oh, to- I was just gonna say really- so, yeah, just to add into what you just said, it's like the congresswoman said, she said, we don't need black faces that don't have black voices. That's what Ayanna Presley said. So it is problematic to your point. I just wanted to add that in there because I thought that was very relevant to, to what you were saying. But, yeah, we can't tear this party apart. We can't tear this country apart with um, really much more of this. I'm not sure how much we can really endure. You know, it's uh, designed to alienate people. It is alienating people. Um, if the far left Antifa and BLM think they're advancing their cause with what they're doing in the streets with this incredible violence and these radical ideas, I think they're wrong. I think the November election is going to prove that to be the case. Um, you know, when Tom Cotton, whatever you think of him and his positions, wrote that op-ed for uh, New York Times that resulted in the termination of their editor um, because the thing, the, the op-ed apparently wasn't sufficiently put through their process. I don't know what that process includes because I read it and it basically was pretty straightforward. Now the thesis of it was that there was a role for the federal government to be uh, deploying resources toward maintaining um, peace and security and safety in these streets if city mayors weren't going to do it. Now that's a very contentious legal discussion. It's a complicated legal discussion, but for the American people, they're not looking at it through that lens. They're looking at it through a common sense lens. And the, and the position was, you know, they see these videos of complete streets being looted, riots, fires, individuals being killed. Look at the Seattle uh, experiment with their self-government. I mean, that was really designed to show their thesis that a community could operate without law enforcement. Two people, innocents, killed. One was 18, I think 17 or 18 year old recent high school graduate in two or three weeks of it. It completely proved the alternative thesis that communities cannot be governed as they would have them governed by their armed thugs with some sort of ideological agenda. You yeah. remove all the objectivity of any rule of law. And basically, that is how revolutions are started. So they know what they're doing. I don't believe they're going to be successful. But ensuring they're not successful means that we have to have, as you correctly say, um, the boldness to be able to, to stand up and um, embrace the broader sentiment that we do care about the deeply about the plight of African Americans, um, that they have not prospered as a matter of general principle under the ideological governance of the far left. And I also think we need to have, approach all that with a little bit of humility. And um, do like I said, it's not just going in and talking about our agenda, it's going in and listening and then connecting the dots with what we might think to be alternative solutions. And I think if we do that, it, we're going to be well received. Um, and then these riots, like basically, you know, if you're a, a resident of Seattle or Portland, vote these people out. And if you're not going to vote them out, you know, you're going to ultimately find yourself in the position as many people in California, New York, New Jersey, uh, many of these um, predominantly, almost exclusively Democrat-run states have found themselves in leaving. And that's really created one of the most intriguing political dynamics, I think, 
for 2020 is you have tens of thousands of Americans who have fled these left-wing cities for more conservative states. And it's going to be very interesting to see what political impact that has on the Electoral College, because um, many of those states that they've fled to were ones that were kind of purple in nature. Um, a lot, oh, Florida has been a big beneficiary of it. I think that's good news for the president, um, for instance, and um, Carolinas have been. So Georgia has been, I think. So it'll be interesting to see um, the impact that has. I mean, it, it is interesting that the one common denominator of communism, socialism, and even far left governance in the United States is nobody's kicking down doors to get into those places. They're usually kicking down doors to get out of them. And some of these polls about California citizens, so even if you accept the premise that it's a, that the residents of California are more progressive maybe than some of the other states of the country, it's incredible the percent who actually want to get out of California. Um, so, you know, I think that's the message broad and broad. I mean, even in your academic setting, you know, you're going to be hard pressed to find anybody who's fled in our hemisphere, Cuba, Nicaragua, or Venezuela, who's going to have anything constructive to say about the socialist governance that had run those three respective countries. And if you go back generationally a little further to the Cold War and look at anyone who lived in the former Soviet Union or in the Warsaw Pact or in the third world um, communist regimes, Vietnam, Angola, Mozambique, Ethiopia, uh, Nicaragua, they had nothing positive to say about it. So anyone who's actually lived and lived it and experienced it um, has a lot to say and nothing positive about it. And many of the most effective anti-communists in the world, um, you kind of start with Solzhenitsyn maybe and go on from there uh, from a writing standpoint or from an um, activist standpoint are those who actually experienced and fled these systems. Absolutely. Absolutely. And this election is the most important election to date in American history. This is truly a battle between the far left and anyone who's not on the far left. And when you were saying what they have in common, places that are socialist and left leaning, or I should say left wing, not left leaning, or communists, you said that it's they're fleeing those places, they're kicking down the doors to leave. And that's absolutely correct. And I would like to add, I thought you were going to say is poverty, because that's also something that's uh, vastly common there. And um, I think that there's been politicians who have made a career and had a lot of personal gain and financial gain from monetizing other people's pain and suffering. I think that there is a market for victimhood that many politicians take advantage of for both electoral and financial purposes. And I think it's problematic. We have to, as a party, stand for equality of opportunity, for prosperity, for American principles, American values, and for American greatness for all. Uh, and that being said, Michael Johns, it's always a pleasure. It's a great honor to speak to you on this podcast. We look forward to having you on again. Thank you, sir. All right. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Joe Silverstein Podcast. Visit www.joesilverstein.com and follow Joe on Twitter at SilversteinUSA. Visit www.thecornellreview.org to keep up with breaking news, our latest articles, and more. Like the Cornell Review on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter. God bless America.